Welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. The five senses are about distinction, the idea of self-nature being inherently real. They are extensions of our ego. Why is the understanding of our own true nature so difficult for human beings? Jetsama answers, because we are practicing the mantra of separation constantly on five different levels at once. Nundro, a preliminary foundational Buddhist practice, is the support for all other practices that follow. It is designed to pry our minds loose from the conceptualization, delusion, and over-intellectualization that our five senses have been reporting to us for aeons. Today, I would like to continue with uh, the thought that I presented to you, or the mode of, of, uh, of um, consideration that we entered into the last time that I taught. The last time that I taught, we talked about, it was two weeks ago, I think, yeah. We talked about how, what, uh, what is the benefit of doing preliminary practice. We talked about that somewhat, and we also talked about why can't you just say one heartfelt, joyous mantra as opposed to the 100,000 accumulations of each of the five elements that we have to accumulate in Lindro practice? So, and this is a very common uh, kind of question. So we, we talked about that, and I'd like to continue in that vein with a, with a deeper explanation and a, and a better way to understand. I think this will be really helpful to you. First of all, when you think about your reality as it is now, you must ask yourself, what are the five senses? What are the five senses, and what are they telling you? When we go to school, we learn that we have sight, hearing, smell, touch, and taste. Those are the five main senses, right? Now you have to ask yourself a question. What are those five senses reporting to you? And what is the validity of that, according to the Buddhist teaching? According to ordinary thought, we are definitely told that we are to hold true to the reportings of the five senses, to what the five senses tell us. We hear all kinds of colloquialisms in our society, don't we? Uh, only believe, let's see, not believe none of what you read and only half of what you see or something like that here. And then seeing is believing. Who said that? Somebody over here said seeing is believing. That's another one. Um, there are all kinds of little cute sayings that we are given as a way to indicate that we should really study things with our five senses. And from the information we take in with our five senses, we should formulate an idea or hypotheses, and we should, we should stick to that, and that is, that is intelligence. And we are told that's how to be an intelligent person, that's how to be a, a, a thoughtful individual, that's how to be 
really with the program. Now, the Buddha gives us a completely different idea on the five senses. If you dispel your current understanding of the five senses, that which you, what you were giving, uh, that which you were given at, from your parents and as you were growing up and in school and from our society, sort of pull back and re-examine the five senses in a different way. Sort of just pull back a little bit and re-examine them. What does the sense of sight tell you? Well, the sense of sight, of course, well, obviously, I look at you, you look at me, that's what the sense of, sense of sight is doing. It tells me what color, it tells me what shape, it tells me what size, it tells me how far away. Uh, we are basically predators as animals. Both of our eyes are in the front. That means we can judge distance. So our eyes are telling us many things. But is there one, here's what you have to ask yourself, is there one underlying fundamental idea that the whole reality of sight is based on, that is mostly invisible until you pull back and truly examine it? Is there one idea that sight is based on? Well, you must think to yourself, what is the point of sight? The point of sight is to measure and determine and formalize in some way the separation between self and other. So there has to be a fundamental idea, a basic concept that is underlying the reality of what sight is to us. And that idea is that of self-nature being inherently real and separate from other. Sight is about distinction. How do we use it? We use it to get to a room without falling over something. We use it to measure distance. If we want to catch something, uh, nowadays we probably use most of our predator eyes-in-the-front skills differently than we did a long time ago, now we might use that skill of judging distance to maybe catch a ball or run after the kid before he falls in the pool or something like that. You know, there's, there's a sense of distance that we need now. We use it differently. A long time ago, we would use it to catch our prey. So sight is about distinction. In order to catch prey, the idea to catch prey must be based on the idea of self-nature being inherently separate and real and other also being inherently separate and real. So this is about distinction. This is about separation. When we, have the, when we use the sense of smell, sense of smell is also used to evaluate our environment. There was a time when the sense of smell protected us, for instance, from fire or from putrefaction. For instance, uh, early man, early humankind might have moved away from smells that were putrid or unsavory and might have moved toward smells that were succulent and inviting, such as the smell of food. 
But still, that is based on the idea of self-nature being inherently real and separate from one's environment. Because even in the idea of moving toward food using the sense of smell, self-nature moves toward other. So fundamentally, underneath there is still the idea of separation. If the sense of smell is used uh, to, to move away from something that is repellent, such as, well, human waste or something like that. You know, in early humankind, you would assume that, was, that would be the first ways that we moved away from waste in order to keep a sanitary environment. You can think that this is self-nature holding to the idea of its inherent solidity and reality and separation needing to move away from other, something that is other than self. It's the same basic reality with touch as well. Because even though we do use touch for ourselves, we do feel ourselves. We, we sometimes, you know, what does my skin feel like today? What does my hair feel like? What, do my, what does the fabric I'm wearing feel like? We still use that, but still even in there you can hear the separation. My hair, as though there was something about me that were separate from something else about me. Even there, you can hear the hint of separation. My clothing, there is something about me that is separate from my clothing. But the sense of touch is also used to get around in the world as well. Particularly, it's used as a backup. If sight fails, one can use touch. One can use touch if there is limited light. There are certain things about touch that tell us when there is danger. Uh, I, I, I suppose that is how early humankind learned how to deal with fire. They could feel the heat of it. They could feel that when they, when they felt it or touched it, there was some injury. They made a correlation. They made an understanding. So it's like that with hearing as well. When we hear, what do we hear? Sometimes we hear ourselves. I hear myself speaking now, and how am I thinking? I'm thinking, this is my voice. I am speaking. Where is my voice going? I'm learning through my sense of hearing. I'm learning to modulate my voice so that it can go across the room. Microphone notwithstanding. So we learn how to do that, and it has to do with a fundamental idea of self-nature being inherently real and separate. And so the Buddha teaches us, that the five senses are actually extensions of our ego, of our belief in self-nature as being inherently real. And yet the Buddha teaches us that in our nature, we are the primordial wisdom state. We are the intrinsic natural state. We are uncontrived luminosity, we are that which has no distinction, is not separate, is free of all conceptualization. That in our nature there is no separation between self and other. That the idea that self-nature is inherently real is a fabrication. That that is our true nature. Although we are blind to it now because of ignorance. Well, 
What keeps us so ignorant? What keeps us not being able to... I mean, why can't we just kind of sit in a lotus position and go into meditation and awaken to the primordial wisdom state the way the Buddha did when he said, when he moved into his illumination and declared that he was awake? Why can't we do that? Well, we can't do that because we believe... The idea of self-nature being inherently real, we've had lots of practice reestablishing that idea. And what is it that we use to reestablish that idea again and again and again? The five senses. So back to the question about why can't you just recite a mantra once or maybe twice or three times for good measure, or maybe even ten times, and really mean it with complete absorption and complete concentration? And one of the reasons why is because it could never counterbalance the amount of information that's coming into you right now. Right now, your eyes are telling you that you are separate from me. And yet many of you hold me as, you, as, as your root guru, your teacher. But your eyes are telling you that you are separate from me. Reach out your hand. You can't touch me. You can't reach me. So your sense of touch is telling you that you are separate from me. And yet when we study devotional yoga, when we study guru yoga, we come to realize that the appearance of one's root guru in phenomenal reality is in fact the beginning of awakening to one's own nature. That in fact, while we are practicing guru yoga and devotion, while we are practicing devotion, We are actually exercising our own innate, natural ability to see our true face. And that's the point of practicing devotion. That's the point of practicing Gaur Yoga. It's not because your teacher needs it. Trust me on this. It's because we each need to learn to recognize our own true face. And the first exercise, the first method that we utilize, the met- one of the methods that the Buddha has given us is to practice devotional yoga, to practice guru yoga in such a way as to recognize that the, the appearance of the root guru in phenomenal reality is the appearance of enlightenment, that that appearance is indistinguishable from one's own nature. That's a long leap. That's a long journey. That's very, very difficult for sentient beings who have been practicing the yoga of the five senses, basically, since time out of mind. When's the last time you didn't use the five senses? So your eyes are reciting a kind of mantra right now. They are saying, separation, separation, separation. I'm separate. I'm separate from you. I'm separate from you. You're getting this information constantly. Every time you open your eyes, every time you look, you look at something else. Even, and it's so, it's so instinctive and so core, so down to the wire, that even when we look at our own hand, we are looking at something else. How can, so where are you in all this? Don't you wonder? 
So the five senses are giving us all this information. The ear, our, our hearing is telling us that something is coming from over there. When I hear your voice, it sounds like it's coming from over there. Yet the Buddha teaches us that this is merely a display of ignorance. And it's interesting because, and, and actually, uh, young Jonathan uh, gave us a perfect example. He served us really well, and I, I mean to thank him for it, for it. He showed us what happens if you insist on approaching things from an intellectual point of view. You can only judge with these five senses. It will never be open to you to awaken to the primordial wisdom nature. Because we are practicing the mantra of separation constantly. On five different levels all at once. Eyes are telling us we're separate. Ears are telling us we're separate. Touch is telling us we're separate. Well, I, don't know, I haven't tasted any of you recently, but I'm sure if I did, you'd all taste separate. <laughs> but our senses are meant... To measure that, to show us that again and again and again. And this is the information this computer is getting through five different channels continuously. Even in the dream state, our dreams are like our waking reality. We dream about people that are separate. We dream about things that are over there. We dream about the senses functioning as they do pretty much in the waking state. And so on five different levels, all at one time, we are continually practicing the mantra of delusion and ignorance. Now, right now. When we go to practice Mundro then, this is the very reason why it takes so much do you think it's a coincidence that while we are taking in on five different channels this information about separation? Now, uh, though, for those of us that are about to begin to practice Mundro, our preliminary practice, for those of us who are engaging on that track, you are now about to accomplish five different accumulations of 100,000 repetitions apiece. That's what Munro does. And the reason why, once again, this is what I told you the last time we talked, but it bears repeating. The weight in, in the pile of samsaric separation experience, the experience of delusion, of clinging to the idea of self-nature as being inherently real and other as being separate, is so powerful and so strong and so weighty and so continually reinforced that it's surprising, really, if only one complete accomplishment of Mundro could actually do any good. Even with each accumulation of each of the five accumulations counting up to a hundred thousand repetitions. You wonder, how could it possibly counterbalance this tremendous weight on the side of samsaric experience? Well, the plain fact of the matter is that it doesn't completely. 
And for that very reason, there are many excellent, extraordinary practitioners, including very well-known lamas, whose entire life practice has consisted of accomplishing an entire set of mundro again and again and again. I've heard amazing numbers of very famous, well-known, very highly respected lamas who have done 23 mundros, or nine mundros, 11 mundros. And, uh, you know, I know a story of one a very famous Peyo Lama who, uh, who just spent his whole, didn't see any reason to go on, spent his whole life simply accomplishing the five accumulations. But those very five accumulations, this practice, this preliminary practice that is the supportive foundational practice for all other practices that come after, is the very thing that's needed to step back from the reality of the five senses. Because the information that the five senses is giving us now only increases delusion, only increases conceptualization, only increases over-intellectualization to the point where one cannot experience the underlying truth of one's nature. Instead, one is constantly intellectualizing. So this accumulation of Mundro is meant to begin to pry that loose, to begin to disengage it, to begin to step back from this kind of perception. One of the Qualities associated with clinging to the idea of self-nature as being inherently real, which we do. And not only that, but we are also taught to, and this is another thing that we do, we insist on self-nature being separate and inherently real. We, we, We absolutely insist on it. Because we believe that self-nature is separate and real, if we have a self, and if it is separate, and if it is real, we want it to be better. And so there is an arrogance and pridefulness that comes with that kind of over-intellectualization. With that kind of superstructuring, that kind of strong ideation of self-nature being inherently real. Because if you have a self then everything else is other. And everything else that is other is either going to be better or worse, richer or poorer, happier or unhappier, or something else or something else than you. And that's the experience that continues like that, very, very far away from compassion, very, very far away from a good heart, very, very far away from pure qualities. In fact, that kind of clinging to self-nature with a passion only increases desire, greed, grasping. This is what the Buddha has taught. And a large part of the desire and the greed and the grasping that occurs is the need to make self elevated. And of course, from that, 
comes this terrible pride that we are afflicted with that in the end causes us to be suffering, causes us to suffer and to alienate ourselves both from our practice and from everyone else. These are not desirable qualities, and yet they're natural, associated with the idea of self-nature being inherently real. And so one of the first things that we do is the thing that everybody kind of wonders why we have to do. And that is the first section of Mundro practice, which is refuge. And in the taking of refuge, one meditates on the faults of cyclic existence, sees that cyclic existence is simply an endless tumbling like a bee in a jar with endless discursive thought and intellectualization and, and, and uh, compulsiveness and desire and, and all these different things, all these different qualities that are associated with samsaric existence, like a bee tumbling around in a jar. And so while this is the fate of those who don't have a meditation or a practice or a way to cut through. And that's what Mundro is meant to do. It's meant to cut through. It's like a big sword to cut through ignorance. Since they don't have that kind of training, they develop a tremendous amount of pride. But suppose that instead we were to examine the faults of cyclic existence, realize that cyclic existence is like a bee tumbling around in a jar and that it is pointless and and there's no satisfaction there. There's no real happiness in cyclic existence, no lasting, permanent happiness. Once we realize that, in our first element of Mundro, we look at the three precious jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and we see that the Buddha is the very expression or very display of the primordial wisdom nature that is our nature. The Buddha is the teacher, therefore, who is the very mind of enlightenment and the only source Really, because this is the mind of enlightenment. You can't make, you cannot grow apples from pumpkin seeds. You have, in order to give rise to enlightenment, the source of that information, the source of the path, the source of the teaching has to be the mind of enlightenment. And so the Buddha appears in the world and gives us the teachings. The very mind of enlightenment appears in the world and shows us the way to exit samsara through giving us the Dharma. The Dharma is the second object of refuge. The Dharma is the path or the method or the activity that that, uh, exits from samsara. Dharma arises from the mind of the Buddha. The Buddha is the very display of enlightenment. And then the third object of refuge, of course, is, is the Sangha. The Sangha is that body of practitioners, including ourselves, once we actually take refuge and begin to practice, who uphold the teachings, protect them, propagate them, as we are doing now, and, and uh, cause them to remain within the world, without which there would be no access to the, to the uh, Dharma. So we look at the faults of cyclic existence. We decide that we wish to exit cyclic existence in order to awaken to the primordial wisdom nature in which there is no causation for suffering. And... So we take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And what we do when we take refuge is we say that over and over again. We say it maybe in Tibetan, but we say it basically, I take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And and here in Vajrayana, we also say in the Lama because the Lama is representative of the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. The the Lama gives us this access, this connection. 
Now we find out that while we're reciting this mantra of taking refuge, we do prostrations. I take refuge in the Lama, and the Buddha, and the Dharma, and the Sangha, like that. And we take refuge like that. We go down. You've seen the prostrations. Some of you know how to do them, right? You've seen people actually make the prostrations. So you ask yourself, why do you have to do that? What's, what's with the up and down? I mean, why can't you just, you know, what's with the up and down? Why can't you just say, well, okay, you know, I see the faults of psychic existence. All right, I'm out of here. Uh, Buddha's got the scoop. Dharma's the way. Sangha's going to help. I get it. Why do I have to go up and down? <laughs> and it's because constantly, constantly in our everyday life, we exercise the idea of self-nature being inherently real and separate, and we superstructure around that, like building constantly with tinker toys, pridefulness and arrogance associated with the belief in self-nature as being inherently real and separate. This pridefulness and arrogance causes a stiffness, a mental, a kind of spiritual, psychic, emotional, and mental stiffness that literally makes us, um, makes our, uh, one expression that's used is, uh, makes our minds hard as horn. You know, like hard like bone. Instead of having the, the flexibility, the spaciousness, the clear, undefiled illumination that is our fundamental nature. Our minds, instead of being luminous, spacious, flexible, free of contrivance, free of discursive thought and conceptual proliferation, instead of being like that, our minds are stiff, rigid with the need to reinforce a preconceived idea of self-nature being inherently real. Rigid. And I look around and I see. I see the rigidity. I see it in myself. We all have a piece of it. And I'm being nice now. We all have a lot of it. (laughs) So much of it. And so it is for that reason that we cannot simply sit down and awaken to our nature. Lord Buddha himself went through the extensive and extraordinary effort of meditating on the emptiness of self-nature and the emptiness of phenomena in order to come to the state where the mind was simply awake Luminous, untethered, innately wakeful, free of conceptualization. Just so, as it is, 
mind as it is. So now, we are about to accomplish Mundro, and we're going to go up and down a hundred thousand times. Meditating on the faults of cyclic existence, meditating on the preciousness of the objects of refuge, the three precious jewels. And as we go up and down, counterbalancing all of this experience. Because from that practice, pride is diminished. Over-intellectualization begins to subside. Even craving begins to subside. Even craving. Because when we're not doing that, we are self and self wants everything it can get its hands on. Because while we are strong and, 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 and residing in the idea of self-nature being inherently real and everything else being other, craving increases. If self-nature is real, it has to be strong, it has to be good, it has to continue. I crave life, I crave experience, I crave stimulation. So while we're not accomplishing this dharma, we are basically involved as a mantra, gimme, 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 I want, 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 I want. That's our mantra. And we're saying this on five different channels. We're talking super stereo here. Five different channels. And so this is why such extraordinary methods are needed. Look, if we were just here to do some kind of new age stuff, you know, if we were just here to have a feel-good session, you know what we could do? We could all get up and hug. You know? We could turn to our neighbor and give back rubs. You know? I mean, why build a temple? You could have a big hot tub. You know? We could all eat avocados. I don't know. What could we do? We could feel good if we tried. I'm sure we could for about an hour. What, how much time have we got? You know, a good hour together. And then after that, you get to go home. And guess what? You're still a samsaric being. I mean, that feel-good feeling may last for a little while, but we have stuff to do. We're not here for a feel-good session. What Buddhism is about is not temporarily feeling good or beefing up your ego on Sunday morning for another week. It's not like that. We're looking to exit samsara. We're looking to walk through the door of liberation. We wish to end the cycle of suffering, of death and rebirth. Big job. And it's not going to happen through a brief feel-good session. I wish it would. I'd love to feel good as much as you do. Going up and down. I mean, you know, when I did my prostrations, I have to tell you, my philosophy was get them done. I mean, I just, I just, oh, the thought of doing up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. It made me feel old before I started. But I actually got into it after a while. I started off, I was in such bad shape when I started. I think I started off with 50 prostrations a day, which I would have been very old by the time I finished. So I started off with 50 prostrations a day. But I increased them. And uh, I, was, I sort of entered into a period of semi-retreat, and at one point I was doing a thousand prostrations a day. And that, that's, you know, that's not a small thing. I, I was pretty proud of myself for doing that. 
But it got where I loved it. I loved it. I cannot tell you how much I loved it. There were, of course, the superficial side benefits that we're not supposed to appreciate and like, you know. (laughs) The ones about great abs, great pecs, biceps. So those happen. That's true. That happens. But the real pleasure, the real joy of that was this kind of peace that you get from putting yourself aside. There's this peace, this kind of, oh, you know, when a person is constantly thrusting themselves into the forefront and trying to be the center of the world, you have to have compassion for them, don't you? Because you realize they're not happy. They can't, you can't be happy if you've got to be the center of everything. That wonderful feeling of, of, of doing the prostrations and putting yourself aside, that to me was a great pleasure. And I've often thought that at the next period when I have time, rather than going into a more advanced practice, I would prefer to do another Nundra. That would be my preference. The experience that I had was that something of this, this ego clinging, something, something of this, I don't know, belief that I had to be the center of, the, of everything began to dissipate began to loosen up. I found myself to be looser. What used to be a big deal didn't seem to be such a big deal anymore. What I had to take issue with, because I am so smart, I didn't need to take issue with anymore. I just didn't have that kind of need. That was my experience after doing prostrations. That was kind of a little side benefit. And what I also found had increased in me was the sense of devotion, the sense of after having contemplated the faults of cyclic existence and then having uh, taken refuge so many times, I began to really uh, kind of imprint experientially a, a real devotion for the preciousness of the three precious jewels, for their exceptional quality, for the sense that there is, I mean, where in samsara can you find something as precious as the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You know, nothing else really leads to liberation in the same way. And again, we're not looking for a day at the park. We're not looking for a feel-good religion. We are looking for liberation. We are looking to awaken as the Buddha has awakened. We are looking to exit the cycle of suffering, returning only to benefit sentient beings. And that's the goal. To remove the very causes of suffering from our mind stream, the very seeds that produce the fruit of suffering, that's the goal. That's a big job. And it's going to take a big medicine to make it happen. So this is why it takes such an extraordinary effort You know, and I have to tell you, I I would love to be in a position to be able to candy coat this for you, you know? I would love to be able to say, if you just come here on Sunday and occasionally, you know, maybe on Wednesday nights or, you know, if you just do this or some small thing, then you'll be much happier and everything will feel good and you'll be a Buddhist and all Buddhists are happy. Well, that's not true. I know plenty of Buddhists that are unhappy. (laughs) In fact... 
Now, I know plenty of Buddhists that are unhappy. What produces happiness is not being a Buddhist. What produces happiness is eliminating the causes of suffering in one's mind stream. And that is done through loosening up the strength of one's ego clinging and therefore one's pridefulness, one's arrogance, one's grasping, one's desire, one's ignorance, one's jealousy. These are the seeds that produce future unhappy rebirths and even present experience that is very unhappy. And yet it's all we've known. And even our beloved parents who meant to give us everything that we need taught us how to cling to our egos. Taught us how to spend our whole lives looking for material possessions that will somehow make us happy. Or get enough education so that we can be happy. Or, and I'm not saying any of these things are bad. I mean, I'm educating my kids. I got an education. But don't be fooled. These are not the things that make you happy. And these are not the things that satisfy you, your needs, your life. And these aren't even the things that you can take with you when you die. There's only one thing that we can really take with us when we die, and that is our mind. The condition of our mind. The habitual tendencies of our minds. Whether we have engaged in good qualities, or whether we have been selfish and arrogant. This is what we will take with us. The condition of our mind stream. What causes have already been brought about that will someday bear fruit? This is what we bring with us when we die. And so this is the kind of thing that we need to address. Unfortunately, we have been taught wrongly. There's more to it than the information that we have been given. Our beloved, kind parents, who meant well, who meant to support us, who meant to care for us, who meant to give us the information that they thought we would need, didn't know the whole picture. And they themselves possibly have lived and died without making much progress spiritually. I mean real progress, the kind of progress that leads towards truly exiting samsara. Even though they were good people, even though they worked hard, and that's the sad truth of cyclic existence. And one of its main faults, it's like a narcotic, and it's difficult to understand. But when we engage in the practice of Dharma, the stakes are high. We're not asking for feel-good. We're not asking for fluffies and fuzzies. We're not asking for... I don't know, just kind of a status kind of thing. Um, you know, you get your very own mala. That's kind of cool. Not many people in America have a mala. Um, you know, you get to call yourself an exotic religion. Everybody else puts the usual religions on their, on their applications. Um, you can put Buddhist. Whoa. I mean, that's just so cool. And um, you get to go to this place where everybody's, you know, everything's set up kind of different. And it's really exotic. And if you bring your friends there, they'll, they'll think you're really cool. 
or crazy. <laughs> so you have to ask yourself, you know, is that what you're after? Is that what you want here? I don't think so. I think if you're here and you're listening to this and you haven't walked out yet, <laughs> there's a good chance that you realize something of the false of cyclic existence. There's a good chance that you really want to make progress on the path. There's a good chance, in fact, that you would like to enter the door of liberation. There's a good chance that you would like to awaken to your innate Buddha nature. There is a good chance that you wish to be liberated and that you wish to exit samsara. There's a good chance that you wish to cease giving rise to the causes for more suffering. And if that's the case, here's the way. I can't sugarcoat it and tell you that it's easy. It takes a lot of work. On the other hand, it took a lot of work for you to get this way. <laughs> you know, if any of you have ever had psychotherapy, uh, the first thing that you, uh, if you, if you remember, you, if you ever had uh, counseling or psychotherapy of any kind, your first question was, how long is this going to take? <laughs> And the usual answer is, how long did it take you to get this crazy? <laughs> so you kind of figure the math that way, you know? Well, the great thing about Vajrayana is that it does not take as long as it took you to get this crazy. Truly, it doesn't. Only better than that would be liberation through chocolate. I can't, you know, beyond that, what could you ask for, you know? As soon as I can figure out how to make that work, I will, I promise. <laughs> Liberation through chocolate. But it takes more than that. It takes some doing. It takes some work. And here's where you have to decide whether you're going to be your own best friend or not. Here's where you have to decide what you want. And boy, talk about reaping what you sow. This is the path in which that phenomena is exacting. How deeply you go into devotional yoga, into guru yoga. That is how quickly, how surely, and, and with what, and, and how, in what a profound way you will come to recognize your own nature. How deeply and how, how, how consciously, how joyfully, how, how much investment uh, you you uh, offer with that kind with what kind of effort are you going to enter into prostrations? According to that effort, you will exit samsara. You will begin to change in the appropriate way. You can't think good thoughts and exit samsara. It's not like that. There are actual things that have to take place. From the most profound inner subtle changes of the psychic channels, winds, and fluids being completely altered and in some cases actually turning in direction. These are the things that occur on a secret level before one enters into Buddhahood. And that doesn't happen by thinking good thoughts or back rubs or hot tubs. Too bad, huh? <laughs> and on a more superficial level, the changes that need to take place are the elimination of the poisons. Hatred. And that means hatred is the same as anger. 
hatred, greed or grasping or desire, ignorance, jealousy, pride. The elimination of these poisons, there's no way around. You cannot enter into the gates of enlightenment. You cannot exit the suffering of samsara without eliminating those poisons. It has to happen. These are the realities. And it's your best friend that's telling you them. If all I wanted was to collect lots and lots of students and lots and lots of moolah, I know how to speak the good speak. I know how to make you feel good. I know how to give you only the good news. I know how to tell you a bunch of stuff that's going to make you live here feeling, leave here feeling like, yeah, wow, that lady made me feel great. I'm going to smack $1,000 on her right now. I know how to do that. I can do that. But I won't. Because I am your friend and I'm not going to lie to you. The method of Dharma is challenging. It is difficult. It requires investment. It requires developing pure qualities and eliminating poisons. It requires change. For real. Not just on the outside. Not changing your attitude or changing your facial expression. Or changing your clothes but changing to the core of your being really so deeply that the inner psychic winds, channels, and fluids are also utterly changed. And like anything else that requires such development, it requires time, effort, pure intention, Commitment, the hated word in America. Commitment. That's what, what is required. You may hate the word commitment, but I tell you, you've already got one. Right now, we are committed to suffering. Because we keep engaging in creating the causes for more suffering. So that's our commitment so far. It's only a question of changing the commitment, that's all. It's not a question of having a commitment for the first time. You've already done that. And look where it's got you. Not as happy as you could be. We are all suffering from old age, sickness, and death. All of our joys, all of our accomplishments, they are impermanent. Everyone that we love, we will be separated from. Everything that we gain, we will lose. This is what we're committed to. Think about it. So instead, if we're going to have a commitment, let's have one that results in the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings. So let's not be so afraid of the hard work it's going to take to get there. We're working hard anyway. We're working hard because we've caused ourselves to suffer and we have to dig ourselves out Every blessed day. I mean, every day we work hard. What's the difference? The Buddha teaches us that someday everything we have will be taken away from us. When we die, we will have nothing other than our minds. So in that case, why not offer everything we have, including all of our effort, our hearts, our minds, our time, our energies, toward creating the one thing 
that is lasting and true. Liberation. Exiting samsara, entering into liberation for the sake of sentient beings so that their suffering and your suffering will cease. you got to do something. Might as well do that. It's a little bit like um, our tendency to, for instance, not want to exercise. You know, we know, we, I, I'm an exercise buff, so I like to use this as an example a lot. We know that if we exercise, for instance, and take care of our bodies, eat well, exercise, get enough rest, that sort of thing, we know that we'll feel better intellectually. We know it. And if we've ever tried it for a brief period of time, we've even had that experience for a brief period of time. So, but we don't want to do it because it's just hard, you know, it's just hard to get on that machine or to walk or to run or to ride the bicycle or whatever. It's just hard. So we don't like to do it. So we don't exercise. And then it's hard to think about what to eat. We just grab food quick and we don't think about that. So we don't eat very well. And then it's hard to go to bed early because, you know, you have to work all day and you want to stay up and watch another couple hours of TV and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. So we keep doing the things that create feeling bad. And so there's our routine, there's our practice, there's our commitment. We have one. It's not that we don't have one. We have a practice, we have a commitment. Every day we build that discomfort, we build that lack of health. Every day we work real hard on shortening our lives. We work really, really hard on being either obese or simply out of shape and sort of jelly-like. And, and we just work really hard, you know, not taking care of ourselves so that we can feel utterly and completely miserable. And then we can go to therapy. And then we can try to get other people to love us so that we feel better. Right? So that's our program. That's what we do every day. That's our practice. So what I'm saying is if you have a practice anyway, which you do, why not have a different practice, one that produces a good result? I mean, think of it. It's so darn logical, it could work. Like supposing, you know, you took a different tack. Let's say on a physical level, you exercised and you ate well and you went to sleep and, you know, you just like did a different thing and suddenly started to feel much better and had lots of, e- of energy and, and didn't need everybody around you to support you and love you because you didn't feel so hung up all the time. Well, supposing that were to happen. Well, practicing Dharma is like that. We're already engaged in the practice of suffering. Right now, every day, today, yesterday, tomorrow, we have, we will create the causes for more suffering. So since we're already on a program and going downhill for it and suffering in samsara for it and wandering around helplessly like a bee buzzing around in a jar... Why not develop a program that's a little different? Why not do what is good for you? You're busy doing what's bad for you. Let's get busy doing what's good for you. The question is not who loves you. The question is, do you love you? Are you going to do this for you? Only you can. So that's 
what I would like to share with you as a way to understand as we begin to go into Lindro practice, those of you that are new and those of you that have not finished your Lindro and, and wish to really double back and make the supreme effort, and also those of you that wish to accomplish another Lindro, because I think it's an excellent idea. Lindro is the practice that's always happy. I, I like to do Lindro. Do, those of you that have done it, you like Lindro? I do too. It's actually, I like it much more than a lot of the other practices we have to do. I like it a lot more. Uh, for those of us that want to double back and, and for those of us that are just starting, the information is the same. It's according to what you do. Cause and effect. It's not a secret, you know? You know those cartoons about climbing to the top of the Himalayas and the gurus up there? What's the secret of life? What's the secret of life? Cause and effect. That's it. It's mechanical. Seed produces fruit. You do this, you get that. You drop this, it falls. That's it. That's the big secret of life. And you're in charge. And the jewel that leads to liberation is in your hand. Are you going to cash it in and use it to benefit yourself? Are you going to buy the end of suffering with that jewel? Or are we going to continue like mindless birds to look at this precious jewel and then see another bauble associated with life and think, oh, though they're equal, they're both shiny? Because that's what we have done. In closing, I would like to repeat once again one of my favorite lines from a popular song that was out, I guess, 15 years ago. Um, it's on, a, on an Art Gar, Garfunkel album. And uh, so that'll tell you how old it is. Um, and what the, the album is called either Claire or Angel Claire. can't remember which. Angel Claire, I think. And uh, the name of the song is Mary Was an Only Child. And, and here's how the line goes. And if you saw, if you see the stars at night and you find them shining equally bright, you might have seen Jesus and not have known what you saw. Who would notice a gem in a five and dime store? Our minds are like five and dime stores. Now learn to train yourself to see what is truly precious and what's only a bauble. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Thank you.